This is The Feed. From Markham. From Richmond Hill. From Vaughn. From Aurora. East Gwillimbury. Whitchurch, Stouffville. From everywhere you are. This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Throughout this pandemic, we've been hearing about what are described as game changers in the fight against COVID-19, the discovery and implementation of vaccines worldwide, the booster shot, antiviral pills, and now the pediatric vaccination just last week approved by Health Canada for use in children aged 5 to 11. Infectious diseases specialist Dr. Janine McCready is joining us on the feed right now with everything we need to know about Pfizer's pediatric vaccine. Welcome to the feed, Dr. McCready. It's always great to hear from you. So let me ask you this. How important is this in the fight against COVID-19? I mean, I think it's very important. We've been, you know, waiting for this day. We've had vaccines rolled out uh, very safely and successfully to the adults and then the youth group. And now this is, you know, just getting to these younger age groups is very important. And especially as we've seen cases over the last uh, few weeks and months rising in the unvaccinated under 12 group, I think it's this is going to be very important to provide, you know, additional protection to the children themselves, allow them to protect their loved ones and prevent spread to their loved ones that, you know, maybe the vaccine can't work as well in for whatever reason or that are ineligible because they're still younger, and also to provide more protection to the community. So I'm very excited about this. I think it's very important. And we understand 5 to 11, we understand under 12, but why the age five as the starting point? Why the age 12 or why the age five? Yes. Because they, well, so basically when um, Pfizer was looking at the age groups, they wanted to break the age groups down in that younger group to understand how their immune systems worked and what is the best dose to give them and what is the, uh, so that the vaccine will be efficacious and will protect them from COVID and will also minimize the side effects. So when they looked at the trials, they did one study between the 5 and 11-year-olds, and then they've done another study with younger cohorts under 5 with even a smaller dose of the COVID vaccine. So that's why for the vaccine that's being approved now, the data that we have is for children that are 5 to 11, and it's with a 10-microgram dose, which is about a third of the adult dose. And there's still studies ongoing um, with both Pfizer and Moderna and the younger kids looking at even different doses in those, um, those groups. And the reason for that is because not all all immune systems are equal. So as uh, people grow and as they age, your immune system changes. And that's really the main thing that is influencing the doses of these medicines or the doses of these vaccines, sorry. Um, and it's, so it's not based on your weight and your size, but it's more based on your age and how mature your immune system is. And I think we need to make it clear that if a child is four right now, but turning five by the end of 2021, he or she is eligible. Yes, correct. Exactly. So if your child is a uh, late November or uh, December baby in 2016, then they are eligible to get vaccinated now. Let's quickly talk then about the dosage, about the time between first and second. And this would be based on recommendations by NASI. And also, is there a booster shot on the horizon for kids 5 to 11 who have shot one, shot two? Yeah, so right now what NASI has recommended is an eight-week interval between the first and second doses for these children in the 5 to 11 group, and that's based on a few things. So one, it's based on all of the data that we have from adults. 
So in Canada, as many people know and many people experience, they recommended a extended dosing interval. And so now we're able to look back at all that data from the 12 plus group and see how strong the immune responses have been and how kind of long they last when people receive the dosages at different intervals. And it looks like eight weeks seems to be a good sweet spot where you get good protection and it maybe lasts longer than it would if you were getting a shorter dosing interval. There's also some potentially emerging evidence that we're waiting to be published from other jurisdictions that with a longer dosing interval in the uh, 12 plus group, and especially the the 12 to 15 and 16 to 24 year old males, that a longer dosing interval may actually reduce the risk of side effects and especially reduce that low risk of uh, having myocarditis. So that's why NACI has recommended that extended eight-week dosing interval. And that, of course, is something that is maybe on the minds of parents and caregivers, the side effects, the potential side effects that we've seen in older age groups, but could possibly take place in the 5 to 11-year-olds. What do you say to parents who are concerned about present and future side effects? Yeah, so I mean, I think it's under, it's important to understand the information we have. And so the, the trial that was done, there was 3,000 kids that received the vaccine and there was no cases of serious adverse events in those trials. So no cases of you know, serious anaphylactic allergies, no cases of myo or pericarditis and no other unexpected effects. Um, and the main side effects that people had were a sore arm, a bit of chills, maybe some muscle aches, fatigue, maybe a headache. So typical things you'd get after a shot. That is, a, you know, the 3,000 is not powered to detect very rare side effects. So there's going to be a lot of monitoring now that uh, it's been being given widely. And so the one advantage I think we have and that parents can really, you know, be, uh, feel very comfortable with and, and give us more information is that Although we're, you know, we we wanted to be at first and we wanted to be doing this, the United States is now a few weeks out. And so they've started giving vaccines as of November 3rd, and they've already administered over 3 million doses to this 5 to 11 age group. So then there's been no safety signal, no unexpected uh, effects seen in that. So that is extremely reassuring that that many doses. And additionally, with those rare myo and pericarditis, In the older age groups, almost all of those cases were after the second dose. So again, with our extended dosing interval of eight weeks, by the time we're starting to get second doses, there will literally have been millions of children in the United States that are at least a month after their second dose. So we will have good real-life data as well as the trial data to really give our, ourselves confidence. Um, and based on everything we know about the vaccines, I suspect the, the risk will be very low. And it's always comparing that to the risk of COVID. And so the risk of COVID and, and those rare you know, side effects or rare um, adverse effects from actually getting sick are much higher than any rare effects that we foresee from the vaccine. The initial feedback once approval was met by Health Canada last Friday, a week ago Friday, was one of enthusiasm for the most part by parents, caregivers, and kids. But there are still little portions here and there of corners of the country where parents are not keen on themselves being inoculated, and they certainly don't want their children as well. How do we deal with that? What 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 rights does a child have, age 5 to 11? What if he or she wants to have this vaccination and the parents won't let him or her? 
I mean, I think that's, it becomes, you know, obviously a very important and very complicated discussion to have. And I think that's when you really have to engage all of the, the trusted healthcare workers that are involved in the care of both the parents and the children and get to the root of the, of the issue. So, I mean, I have unfortunately still numerous conversations with people every day that are unvaccinated and have caught COVID. Um, and when I, you know, kind of speak to them about, well, why didn't you get vaccinated or would you think about it in the future? A lot of it is misinformation that they were told something and they were worried or they were afraid. And a lot of it's coming from a place of, of fear. And so if not everyone, but if you can really, you know, break that down and help to give them the accurate information, a lot of time that helps move ahead. So, you know, not every situation, I think that you know, if someone was vehemently opposed, it becomes quite complicated. But I think at this point, um, you know, those those open conversations that no one's forcing the kids to get vaccinated, that this is a, you know, a recommendation and it's really there to, to make everybody safer uh, and to get to the, to, to answer people's questions honestly and with the information we have and, and uh, you know, to build that trust on an ongoing basis, I think is where we need to focus on right now. How do you suggest that parents talk to their children about the vaccine and about the this the ability now the right to have the the vaccination the covid-19 vaccination and in particular in your own home i understand you have a a, a little girl she's going to be 5 uh, next month and you have a a little boy who is 8 and so is both of them will be eligible to get the shot what do you say to them what's the discussion like in the macready household <laughs> so, I mean, they're thrilled. My eight-year-old has been asking every day since we knew there were kids vaccines if he could be in a clinical trial. And then when we uh, saw the plane landing last week in Hamilton that said that the vaccines had arrived, he literally wanted to get in the car and drive there so he could get a dose <laughs> as soon as possible. So he is prepared and ready to roll up his sleeve. Uh, his sister's a little bit more reluctant. And I think for kids that are a little bit afraid of needles or you know that kind of thing, I think preparing them. So, you know, not talking about the experience too much that they get anxious about it, but preparing them that, you know, this is where we're going to go, making sure they feel safe and then um, making them, you know, figure out what they're worried about. And also talking to them a little bit about why it's important. So, you know, what are things that they love to do that they're going to be able to do again without worrying once they get vaccinated, whether that's being able to go visit grandma again regularly or do swimming class or participate in that art class that they want to do. So what are the good things, the advantages of it? And, you know, I think my kids are motivated by getting a little, a, a treat or a bonus or a show afterwards. So I think, you know, <laughs> negotiating with them, it is always helpful so they know what to expect. Um, and then, you know, being prepared. So, you know, bringing a, uh, a comfort toy or bringing something for them to watch and, and being prepared to, you know, to hold them and to, to comfort them afterwards. Most of the time with vaccines with kids, they, the buildup can be anxiety provoking for them, but within a few minutes after, they're, they've kind of forgotten about it. Um, and so most of my friends that I've spoken to in the United States have already got their doses. A lot of them have said that, it, that their kids, it was as mild as getting a flu shot. Um, so, you know, not to build it up too much, but to be prepared, I think, is, uh, is important and so that everybody's on the same page and, and they have as good of experience as possible. And, and, you know, we and all of the city of Toronto are all building our clinics that way so that they're very child-centered and, you know, it's a no-pressure environment and, and kids can be super comfortable there. I think it sounds great. Now, let me ask you this. The timing of this. So we're heading into the holiday season. Is it important that now is the time that the 5 to 11-year-olds have the right to, to an approval to have these uh, vaccinations? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, we are starting to see numbers trend up and school outbreaks, unfortunately, uh, increase and school cases increase. And, you know, with everyone wanting to participate in activities and see friends and family, those contacts and those exposures are only going to increase. So getting these first doses into kids is even more important to prevent uh, spread so that we don't see disruptions to their learning like we have previously and that people can, you know, still take precautions and follow public health guidelines, but they can feel a little bit more confident if they are feeling well and haven't had an exposure that you can feel um, that you're a bit more protected. You can love, you can see your loved ones and give them hugs and and not be um, worried like we have been over the last 20 months. So if a child has uh, his or her first dose on, let's say, November 25th, it means that they wouldn't be able to have their second dose until, I believe, the 20th of January. And the Ford government is poised to, I gather, you know, look at lifting some restrictions by January 17th. And maybe that is all restrictions based on the numbers, of course. So it's interesting to see all of that timing in there, 25th of November, the 20th of January, one and two for the, for the kids. And and then the, the, the lifting of, of restrictions on the 17th of January. Wow, that's a lot to take in. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And I, I mean, I think that Dr. Moore has said, and very smartly, that it's, it, you know, it's, I, I hope, and I, I think he has said that it's not a, you know, a firm date. And I think we'd be a bit foolish to set it, you know, that a hard date, uh, not knowing what the next couple months is going to bring. And I, I really do hope, you know, as a parent and as someone that has worked so hard to uh, support the schools and try to keep them open throughout this, that we don't prematurely open things up and kind of shoot ourselves in the foot when we're, we're doing so well and we want to give kids a chance to get vaccinated and, and to give a ch- parents a chance to feel you know comfortable making that choice and get their first and second doses so that um, you know we're prioritizing children, um, which we really should be doing because we, unfortunately, I think throughout this, they haven't always been, um, they've been sacrificing a lot. So I, I do hope that we really take into account what is happening uh, with community transmission at that point. Um, and I, I expect that the government will make a, a, you know, a good decision when the time comes. Dr. McCready, where can we go for more information that would be as parents, as, as people who care, even the older edge of that 5 to 11-year-old age group? Where can we go for solid information? Yeah, so I mean, a lot of the public health agencies, their websites have great information. One place that I often turn to, and I've had the uh, opportunity to work with some, is Science Up First. So they have a website that's scienceupfirst.com, um, and that you know, it kind of uh, be able to uh, basically. Uh, make sure that there's you're clarifying any misinformation that people are hearing. Uh, and I think that's super important. And then a couple places that if you need a one-on-one conversation, there's actually a vaccine consult service for children, youth, and their families available through the Hospital for Sick Children. And then there's also a hotline called the VaxFax hotline at Scarborough Health Network. So both of those places are great resources where you can have a you know one-on-one conversation uh, with a healthcare provider to talk to your talk through your specific concerns. And then obviously your own uh, health providers, your family physicians, your pediatricians are are key uh, people to get accurate information from if you need that individual um, information. Excellent information from you, Dr. Janine McCready, Infectious Diseases Specialist, Michael Guerin Hospital. Thank you very, very much for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up on the feed, the study of bees, a local teen inventor, and a visit with Wonderkind. Stay with us. Do you have a story idea for the feed? 
Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. Congratulations to one of York Region's own. City of Vaughan resident and York University researcher Sandra Rehan has won the prestigious EWR Stacy Memorial Fellowship for her trailblazing research into the behavioral genetics and molecular ecology of bees in an effort to try and conserve, also increase, diverse bee populations in urban settings. Joining us now on the feed to help us understand and a little more of an explanation is Sandra Rehan, Associate Professor of Molecular Evolution, Department of Biology, Faculty of Science, York University. Welcome to the feed, Sandra, and congratulations from all of us here at 105.9 The Region. Thank you very much. So, Sandra, why is the survival of the wild bee population in cities at the center of your research? Well, interestingly, I started studying bees about 15 years ago, uh, before we even knew they were declining. So I started studying bees out of an interest for um, their natural history and behavior and their diversity and their beauty. And then years later, it it came known that bees are declining. So I had some skills that were useful uh, to address bee declines, and I feel very compelled to contribute my expertise But it's interestingly not how I started. It's kind of how we've ended up. And why is the bee population on the decline? And does it have anything to do with climate change? Yeah, so the wild bees in general, um, we have over 20,000 species worldwide, 4,000 species in North America, and probably about 400 species in the greater Toronto area. Um, And... From these species, there are many in decline, um, but the actual actors and the different species aren't well well known. Um, a lot of our work has piloted understanding the wild bee community. Much attention goes to honeybees and bumblebees, but nobody really studies all the other species in as much detail. And so we've we've spent a lot of time trying to figure out these other bees and... So it looks like wild bees aren't doing as well as they should. And um, certainly climate change is a major driver, and and our work has shown that. So where do wild bees call home? What is their habitat right now? And and I'm going to focus on, let's say, York Region. Where do they live? How do they survive? Wild bees are really fascinating because of their diversity. As I mentioned, there's 400 species or so, so they some live in the ground. About three-quarters of known bees live in the ground, um, and then many live in stems. So I study the small carpenter bee, for example. It lives in raspberry and rose stems, um, so many people have them in their own backyards. There's also bees that live in rock crevices and snail shells. Um, so pretty much any conceivable area, little bees can live. Um, some overwinter in flowers for night. Um, a lot of males do that because they don't have a nest to go back to. So their natural history is very varied. And a lot of species remain undocumented, but most live in the ground. So as you think of ants, um, bees live in the ground too. 
Who knew? And I understand that you are considered an international leader in the field of maternal manipulation of worker-like daughter bees. I've never heard of daughter bees. Yeah, so I mean, every time the mother has offspring, right, she produces daughters uh, just like anything else. And the uh, small carpenter bees that we have here locally um, are uh, very small. They live in raspberry and rose stems, and they produce what we call the dwarf eldest daughter. So they feed them less food. Uh, They make them first. This bee is first laid, first to emerge, and she's small because she received less food. Uh, The mom actually bullies her, nudges her forcibly to leave the nest. Um, the, that daughter will then go and forage to feed her siblings to overwinter successfully. And so they all get nutrition to overwinter and become uh, solitary moms the next year. But that dwarf eldest daughter, she, um, she's smalled and beaten up and doesn't have the fat stores. So she actually dies over winter. So it is a case of true worker-like altruism. And some people even call her uh, like the Cinderella sister. Wow. You know, she's working for her for her family and really getting nothing herself. Seem to be some parallels when it comes to human life as well. So how <laughs> yeah. Sandra, how do you study, research these bees? If tell me what a typical research project is like. Are you there with them? Are you watching them? Are you filming them? How do you study them? We've, we do a very mix of, we do a lot in the field. So around York region, we have a lot of different sites where we can establish bees in raspberry stems and we can monitor them in the field. Uh, so we can even paint mark individual little bees and understand who's foraging and at what rate. We can remove bees from the nest and see what the effect of no mum does or no dwarf daughter does on the colony. Um, so we do a lot of work in, in the field to understand the bee in their natural habitat. But we also bring bees back to the lab. Uh, we do a lot of nutritional manipulation and observation in lab. We have observation nests, so we can use infrared cameras to look at their daily habits without them knowing. Um, and we can modify every variable you could imagine in the lab uh, because we can control for a lot of things. And so I have students who really enjoy raising baby bees and feeding them different things. And so we look at their nutrition and, and how well they do on different diets. And that's a really important factor in understanding bee health. You know, it's interesting, wild bees, bees in general, have become almost a bellwether insect, insect when it comes to trying to understand the ecosystem and also their role in it. So how would you describe the importance of the bee population on a forward-going basis when it comes to our ecosystem? Right. The wild bees are really underestimated. I always call them the unsung heroes of the pollinator world. Um, you know, honeybees get all the credit, but they only do about 10 to 20% of the pollination studies have shown. So here we have the wild bee doing 80% of the work and getting them of the credit. So conserving them and sustaining them is vital for our green spaces, for our food supply. So we need them a whole lot more than they need us. Um, and so from a biodiversity conservation perspective, they're vital to preserve just because they're critical wildlife. But from a human perspective, they're vital. If we, you know, one in three mouthfuls of food we eat comes from wild bees. Mm. So it, moving forward, we, we really need to 
manage land better, uh, control um, pesticides and things like that a lot better, and just have a better general education and understanding of them if we hope to kind of coexist with them moving forward. Here, here. So, Sandra, what does the EWR Stacy Memorial Fellowship allow you in terms of expanding your research? What will this give you? So the opportunity, it's a two-year fellowship, and they provide um, a lot of research support funding. And so with this funding, I'm allowed, I'm able to do research not possible um, before. And so we're able to hire um, students and technicians to um, train the next generation of bee biologists, but also to facilitate this research. And so we have larger experiments and more experiments going on simultaneously. So it's really launched, you know, what we can do in two years now may have taken me 10 years to do without this funding. Um, And so it's really expanded my team and brought attention to it. You know, I wouldn't be talking to you today if it wasn't for that. So a lot of the work I'm going to do is a lot more public outreach and education because they'll have the time to do that. Yeah, very well put. You know, I get the sense that you are the voice when it comes to bees, and it's now being heard loud and clear. On a personal note, when you found out that you were going to be the recipient of this incredible uh, fellowship, what did that mean to you? I know that you put a lot of hard work into this, and I know you put in hours of of unrecognized work, and the bees themselves. What does it mean to to be the recipient of something this, this incredible and this international, if you will? Yeah, I was truly uh, shocked. I mean, the president of NSERC himself called my home <laughs> and um, thanked me for my research and for thanked me for contributing to that research in Canada. Um, I've, I've studied all over the world, and I'm very happy to be back home in Canada, where I grew up. And so it, it means a great deal when you're a country, you know, and your federal leaders really do invest in you and trust in you, these resources. So it was a, it's a tremendous honor. Um, there's very few of these awards to be had, and um, I certainly, um, it's a boon for my career. Um, yeah, I still don't fully appreciate the ramifications of, of it, really. It's, it's uh, kind of surreal in many ways, but it's uh, certainly a, a tremendous honor, and, and I'm very blessed to have this opportunity. And we as a population need to do a much better job and we need to pay attention to what you are researching and what you are writing and what you are explaining about bees in this case. What's next for you? More of the same. (laughs) You know, our lives are, you know, we're not very glamorous scientists, but, you know, back in the lab, back in the field, planning and moving forward, um, working with my students and, uh, yeah, just trying to do everything I can given this opportunity. You know, two years goes by rather quickly, so we're try- really trying to hit the ground running, trying to leverage this opportunity for future funding, for more collaboration, to expand our public outreach. So, you know, it's really uh, time to hit the ground running. Thankfully, now with um, a lot of the public health restrictions also um, uh, easing up a bit, we're able to do a little bit more outreach, and we've also embraced the virtual world. Uh, through different programs, and so there's there's a lot of good things to come, and we really hope to be able to disseminate this information. We work with the City of Toronto and and other partners, and so to be able to actually reach the communities and talk to people again will be really nice. What's your advice before we say goodbye to young, budding researchers and scientists who are right now, even as young as elementary students, but they're going through the school system with high hopes and great dreams? 
I'd say it's good to be weird. <laughs> I never fit in. I was always a bit odd, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, I think if you have a passion, embrace it. Um, there's wonderful careers in science. I really encourage uh, women in science in particular. You know, they need all the encouragement they can get. And uh, we do work with high school groups and some of the younger audiences. You know, if there's parents listening, you know, encourage your kids to attend science camps um, and go to museums and really foster that education early. Um, because encouragement early on can pay dividends down the road. And there's so much research to do. You know, I'm only one person. We need a hundred more of me if we're going to attack these kind of questions. And so the future generations really need to um, get excited about this because these problems aren't going away. Associate Professor of Molecular Evolution, Department of Biology, Faculty of Science, York University, Sandra Rehan. Thank you for being you. Thank you so much. That's so nice. Still with York U, an award-winning student inventor, Jim Lang, with that story. Well, the other day, they had the United Nations International Invention and Innovation Awards held in Geneva, and a young man from North York won the bronze medal representing Canada in the International Federation of Inventors Association among the top 1,000 inventors around 35 countries. Thrilled to be joined by Irfan Nouraie. Irfan, how are you? Hi, thank you, Jim. Thank you for having me today. It's, the pleasure is all mine. Um, you've received accolades from the UN, New York University, John Tory, the mayor of the Toronto, the premier. Uh, it's an incredible story. More incredible, you're 19. Where did this passion for inventing things, where did it come from and when did it start, Irfan? Yeah, uh, it actually started when I was, uh, like, when I was starting when I was eight years old. Uh, I had uh, I had a passion in making things and, you know, I would take what my hot glue gun and the garbages and the household items around me and, you know, I glued them together <laughs> to make, like, to create inventions. That's awesome. And, you know, I mean, you know, uh, of course it never worked, but the idea of taking the resources around me and, like, piecing them together to make something better, uh, like, you know, came to me naturally. And from that age, from, like, from that young age, I was very much reading and, and learning, watching documentaries and, uh, like, you know, reading many scientific books. And uh, I read a lot, so... And I also, I remember I had a book, it was called uh, How Things Work, and it was very exciting for me. Okay, so tell us about this invention you came up with, that you won the bronze medal at this prestigious competition. Yeah, uh, it actually, uh, so when I came, like the inspiration behind it was, I actually had two inventions. So one of them, uh, I, I invented one of them when I was 16 years old. Uh, I came up with that idea uh, at 16 years old. And for the second one, uh, I was 18 years old, and the idea behind that is to remove noises for uh, optical signal. For example, you have a message, or you want to send a message from point A to point B, and you, maybe you have a picture, or you have you, like a text, or or a voice message. So if you want to transfer this message by uh, by light, we, we will have a higher 
um, higher speed to transfer the information. So in this invention, we actually transfer information by light because we, we, we're going to have a heart. But in industrial level, there are some kind of problems like noise and they, they will, uh, so they will reduce the quality of the message. So this invention comes with this idea that it removes the noise from uh, the optical signal uh, signals and then it gets the quality back with with lower cost and higher quality. And these, you know, this caught the attention of many like investors and and our professor at, at university and, and they like the idea of like you know reducing the cost and you know the energy to provide something to get back the quality of the message in in, in transferring information by light. And that really is the future, Irfan, because it, it's it's getting quality, but reducing the energy it takes to do it. It's getting us our lives more efficient, but also helping the environment at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, yeah, as you said, like it it gets um, uh, the five top sustainable inventions, and in the science world, and and uh, and I, I, I usually try to make uh, to come up with inventions that are sustainable and they can help our you know our cities our communities and and our planet to make it a more sustainable place for its citizens now Irfan, I, i've read stories and biographies of other famous inventors and they talk you know on and on about how they had so many failed experiments before they came up with the right one and came up with the invention like the light bulb how many different iterations of this invention did you go through before you found the right one that you said this is it and it worked exactly exactly so yeah the failure like failing is actually a part of inventing like if if you're not failing enough you're not innovating enough hmm. so this is a quote from Elon Musk so failure is is really uh, should be included in in the work because uh, because you can find you can you can find the reasons behind like behind what we, we have not done in in the process of innovating and 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 in the process of engineering design so it totally depends on how on how we find the problem and how we can creatively uh, solve that problem by giving some creative solutions that are not existed and that are sustainable that help our help help our communities and and people's lives. So it totally depends on on the problems and the solutions. A lot of people are listening to this or a fan and thinking this is a brilliant young man coming up with inventions to make our life better. But he's nineteen. Does he? Is it? What kind of music do you listen to? Do you watch certain movies? Like you must have a little bit of downtime, don't you? <laughs> yeah, was, yeah. I also like you know for for movies I watch you know um, like the current war or any like inventors uh, like like Tesla or Thomas Edison yeah. documentaries. They are really inspiring for me, and I, I I I you know I take them as my leader and I follow their their steps, and I hope I can um, you know I can contribute to the inventing world, like making inventions, patent them, and, you know, uh, commercialize them for for the economy. They are, they are inspiring. So you are uh, at the Lausanne School of Engineering, and obviously engineering and invention is your passion. What's next for you, Irfan? 
Yeah, I, I would I would like to be at the voice for many young people, and I, I want to support them. I want to, uh, you know, I, I want to host some meetings for them and to help them for those who are interested in inventing and innovation. And I, I want to host some meetings for them. And also, I'm working on my uh, third invention, and um, we, we, yeah, and I, I'm I'm trying, and also I'm trying to commercialize my second invention and uh, with, with government of Canada we are in negotiations and I hope we uh, or, and, and some incubator incubators like in, in university mm-hmm. and I hope uh, we can do that um, in, in one year and, and, um, yeah, and so it, it, it's all about you know the first the first side of it it's, it's like getting a board or uh, working on the invention and, and the other is to monetize that or, or to make some companies like the entrepreneurial part of it and yeah it's uh, it's it's really ex- interesting for me even even it has failures it has but it's it's really fun I, I, I like it well Irfan I mean you, to me you'd be a natural for Dragon's Den or the Shark Tank I mean who wouldn't want investing you in your bright, brilliant mind and your great ideas thank you thank you so much for your kind words well, thank you, Irfan. I, I, we can't thank you enough for your brilliant mind. You were uh, I know there's a lot of young people listening to this and thinking, you know what? He's inspired me. I'm going to see if I can invent someone. So it's the youth of Canada that's going to make this country great in the future, and you're definitely one of it. Irfan Noura E., a gold medal or a bronze medal champion at the United Nations International Invention and Innovation Awards in Geneva, winning a bronze medal, the Pride of North York. Irfan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for what you do. And I know all of our listeners are thrilled to find out what your next invention is going to be. Thank you so much, Jim. Thank you. Thank you for your support and your colleagues at uh, 1059. Thank you. You're very welcome, my friend. Next, a couple of entrepreneurs spreading kindness. Tina Cortez shares their story. Tara Cochran is the co-founder and co-creative director of Wonderkind.ca. Welcome to the feed, Tara. Thank you so much for inviting me. So tell us about the Wonderkind story. The Wonderkind story. Oh, I always love to share and, and talk about how we, we got started because that uh, it really has been, a, it's been a wonderful and special journey. Um, Shauna and I, uh, we actually met uh, through a fundraising event at our daughter's school. Uh, we worked on a project together for about six or seven months. And the, the whole premise of the project was to bring together local community vendors uh, and the school in the neighborhood and bring together an event that would um, work together with the vendors and the school. And we just kind of learned through the experience, just, you know, our, our, our common interest and passion for Canadian makers, female entrepreneurs, and, uh, and, and how important it was to us and how important it was uh, to to support and, and promote um, these entrepreneurs and these artisans. And we also started to talk about, you know, in our previous careers, I come from um, uh, advertising background and Shawnee used to work in publishing and how we would spend so many hours and time and weekends, which we loved, but we would be going to local markets and researching and finding options for gifting. And we talked about, oh, wouldn't it have been wonderful if there had been this service that has these values and shares these values that kind of simplifies it, makes it more convenient and accessible. Um, you know, sometimes we'd be 
putting together one gift and ordering products, you know, from five different provinces. So that's kind of how Wonderkind came to be. We started to talk about this idea. Uh, we came up with a business plan. And uh, after about one year, it, it came to be. So the the inspiration then was a school event, a fundraiser. Is that right? Well, that's how Shauna and I met. Okay. And then we started talking about, um, you know, just our interests and our life experiences and what we were passionate about. And then it kind of talking about, wouldn't it be great if this service existed, if this, this opportunity where you could gift and you could give back at the same time, but give and give items that are made to keep and they're made to, to treasure and use and also be eco-conscious. So that was really kind of the inspiration and, and the timing of where we were at in our lives and, and what we were looking for for a new venture. Now, we heard stories from businesses throughout the pandemic that they were forced to pivot because of the Mm -hmm. pandemic. Did that impact your business as well? Absolutely. I mean, we had just launched our website in September of 2019. So we were very new and, you know, within you know, within a very short period of time when the pandemic hit, we definitely we we had to sit down and thought, you know, what what does this mean for us, for our business, that we had fortunately um, had established from the beginning an e-commerce website. So we were set up to to sell uh, online. Uh, we did offer food products, uh, products for the home, uh, things that people could use, and we could do uh, shipping and, and local delivery. So it did adapt. We also really felt, you know, how can we you know, we work with over 100 makers across Canada, and we saw such a, a, a scale of, you know, different experiences through the pandemic. Some of the makers, their businesses were online, and they really started to to grow. And then we had other makers that, you know, had to give up their workshop or their studio and, and move and adapt. And it was just really heartbreaking to see to see that. And And we were all kind of going through it together. And I know there's just, you know, so many businesses and, and, and so many different experiences. But for us, we definitely had to adapt not only as a new business, new entrepreneurs, but finding our place and, you know, really figuring out how to, to bring it all together. And we also started to put together care packages and including products from makers across Canada that, that we could also bring together in these bundles. And that became really popular. So people were sending, um, you know, care packages with, you know, laundry detergent and soup mix and soap and things like that. So our offerings started to adapt. Uh, and we definitely, um, we definitely learned so much and, um, and still continue to learn and, and definitely very grateful to still be open and, and offering our service. So do you have a, a brick-and-mortar store, or is it just about the website? So we actually have a workshop in Toronto, and that's where we do all of our shipping and receiving and our curating. So we have a, we do have a space, but we don't have a retail location that's open to the public. So we're not a, a, like a retail store to go in and out of. We're a workshop space and shipping location. So your website, wonderkind.ca, the headline there reads, Thoughtful Gifting Simplified. Explain that to us. Thoughtful gifting simplified is, you know, being thoughtful and choosing the items. It shouldn't have to be complicated. You know, we'll talk to some customers and they're mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, they almost have, you know, they're almost troubled over, you know, finding the perfect gift and they want it to be thoughtful, but they don't have a lot of time and it doesn't need to be complicated. There are so many amazing, talented artisans and makers in our community and across Canada. And, you know, it's, it, there's so many things. And so we want you to know that, you know, we can still capture that thoughtful, meaningful gifting, 
that it's not complicated, it's simple, and that's what we're here for. And we do all of the research. Um, we do, you know, we scout, we have relationships with our makers, some of our corporate partners, we, we do branding on some of the products. Uh, so we're just really here to make the process easy because we don't want people to to be intimidated by the thought of having to go out and get a bunch of gifts and then kind of defaulting to the quick or the, you know, the quick or the standard thing that they've been doing over and over again. You know, we can put together gift sets uh, that have, you know, some of our gift sets have up to products from seven different provinces. Not everybody has time to order products from seven different provinces and bring them together, but that's what we do. So it's thoughtful, but we're here to simplify it for you. Okay, so how does a shopper get started? The shopper <laughs> gets started. <laughs> well, we have we have two so two we have two options on our website. If you go go to wonderkind.ca, that's our website. Um, we have something called Create Your Wonderkind Surprise. So that is a really fun and interactive Q&A that you go in and you can fill it out for yourself or for someone else. And then we create a surprise gift for you or your giftee. So you, you don't know what it's going to be until you receive it. So we have that, that option. And then we also have our shop page, which is pre-curated uh, gift sets that you can choose from. So two options there, both available on our website. And so can we shop for everyone on that Christmas or holiday list? Well, we definitely like to think so. Um, we don't carry products for for children at this time. They're, our products are for 19 and over. Um, but when it comes to, you know, mom, dad, sister, brother, uh, for them, for your colleague, uh, corporate gifting, appreciation gifts, we have lots of variety. Uh, we work with over 100 makers. We also, every uh, gift set that is purchased, we have a partnership with three registered Canadian charities, Opportunity International Canada, Dress for Success Toronto, and also second, Harvest Food Rescue. So a portion of sales also support these, these organizations as well. And who are the entrepreneurs or the businesses that work with Wonderkind? Well, we work with a variety. I mean, we have, um, we have artisans that, you know, glass blowers, uh, chocolatiers. Um, we have, you know, printing companies, uh, jewelry makers. All of these are women-led businesses. So all of the the companies that we work with um, are co-founded co-found, are or co-founded by a female entrepreneur. And they are incredible individuals, amazing artists, and they're doing amazing work in their communities as well. It certainly sounds like Wonderkind encourages learning and sharing and support of other entrepreneurs. Is that right? That's the heart of what we do, and that's you know that's what Wonderkind is. It's it's the imagination, the creativity of you know surprise, the gifting, and also the the magic and the um, art artisans and the work that they're doing and their stories and their journey, and then the kindness of supporting them and and gifting to each other in a meaningful way, and then giving back to the community. It really is encompassing of all of those things. Gifting is a gesture that you know we do it like birthdays or holidays or different things, but. Sean and I really felt that, you know, when they say it's the thought that counts, it is the thought that counts, but it can, the impact can go so much further than, you know, between you and, you know, the recipient It's also giving back to the community and the artisan and that, that story and that substance behind it, I think is just so much more um, impactful. And we include um, a card inside the Wonderkind gifts and we list the artisans and highlight them. Um, that are included in that gift set. So we hope that the recipient will, you know, learn more about them. And, and you know, it's not just the item. It's the the planning, the creativity, the workmanship, 
that goes into it um, that is something that, you know, is to be really appreciated, makes it extra special. Well, we certainly appreciate your time with us today, and thank you for sharing the story of Wonderkind. If listeners want more information or perhaps they're ready to shop, can you provide those details? Absolutely. Our website is wonderkind.ca, and you can find all of our information there. We'd love, love to hear from everyone. After the break, winterproofing your home. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. So the cost of heating your home is sometimes pretty tough to manage. Tina is back with a program to reduce your energy bill. Corey Morton, Supervisor, Affordable Housing Energy Conservation Programs from Enbridge Gas, joins us next on The Feed. Welcome to the show, Corey. Hi, Tina. Thanks for having me as a guest. Well, temperatures are dropping. We saw flurries, yuck, in some areas earlier this week. And it also means that for many people, heating costs will be on the rise. What can you tell us about the Enbridge Home Winterproofing Program? This is a great time to start thinking about winterproofing your home. And winterproofing means uh, thinking about insulation and draft proofing. Um, So the Enbridge Gas Home Winterproofing Program provides income-eligible and home-qualified customers with free energy-efficient upgrades installed at no cost. So some of these upgrades include attic, basement, and wall insulation, draft proofing, and smart thermostats. You mentioned income eligible. What exactly does that mean for our listeners? So to be income eligible, uh, there's a chart actually that can be found at embridgegas.com slash winterproofing. But for example, if there's one person in the house and your income is $37,000, then you would qualify. Or if there's four people in the house, then an income of $73,000 would qualify. One other way to income qualify is if you're on government assistance, such as Ontario Disability or Allowance for Seniors. And there's several other ones on the list at embridgegas.com slash winterproofing, just to verify if you're income eligible or not. So is there a catch if, you know, we've heard that phrase, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. What do you want to say to those listeners who are a bit reluctant to make any sort of change? Yeah, that's one of the biggest barriers of this program is it has to be too good to be true. But if you're income eligible and your home qualifies, so in the majority of cases, if your house is 1980 or older, then you're more likely to qualify because it's built out a building code that has less insulation and less draft proofing. So once you income eligible and home qualify, it is absolutely free. You get a free home assessment, you get free energy efficient upgrades, and then a follow-up visit to verify the savings in your home. And from those savings, you should feel more comfortable in your home and see a decrease in your bills. Can you walk us through some of those upgrades? So what exactly does winterproofing mean? Yeah, so the service provider that will come to your house is a qualified contractor um, that Enbridge has provided to the customers, and they'll look at the attic insulation, 
Um, so they'll pop off the ad attached and measure the insulation that's there as a way to verify, you know, how much more attic insulation is needed. And then they'll go in your basement, around the basement headers, and do some investigation and take some pictures in order to verify that the insulation is required. And for smart thermostat, if you have a older programmable, um, a smart thermostat, uh, some of the products we use are Nest and Ecobee, and they automatically adjust to your schedule. So the savings just become automatic. So if someone does qualify, how long does the whole process take? So we're ready and and have the capacity to do things immediately. It really comes down to the homeowner's schedule and when we can come to their house. So it can be as quick as the customer wants it to be. And how many have already benefited from this program? Do you know? Yes, we've done over 22,000 homes uh, have participated in the Enbridge Home Winterproofing Program. And we estimate that there's approximately 400,000 customers that could income qualify. So if you know somebody who you think may qualify, uh, we use segments like this to get the word out um, and word of mouth and, and just get this out there. It is free. There is no catch once you income and home qualify. And uh, we don't want anybody to, to be concerned um, about this program. So you've talked about winter proofing, but are there benefits during the summer season as well? Yes, definitely. So as much as in the winter season, the warm air is kept inside. If you're cooling your home with air conditioning, that cool air will also retain inside the house better. So there's energy savings on both the gas and electrical side. So where can our listeners learn more and find out if they qualify? So you can go to embridgegas.com slash winterproofing. The online application is there, as well as all the information um, that you need to, you know, either self-qualify or just apply and have our delivery agents, you know, go through your application to qualify you. That's terrific. Thanks for the information, Corey. Thanks so much, Tina. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.